finally, the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Urban Astronomer Podcast. My name is Adam Fasholt and I'm your presenter as well as the owner of urban-astronomer.com where you can read all about the science of astronomy and the occasional bit of space news. This is our very first proper episode and I'm really excited to finally be able to talk to you all for the first time instead of expecting you to have to plow through one of my articles. If you like what you hear, please take the time to let me know whether by commenting on the website at www.urban-astronomer.com or on my Facebook page. Or, or by leaving a review on iTunes. And if you don't like it, well, then I'd really like to hear about it. I want you all to enjoy this, so anything that helps you to make the podcast great, it's more than welcome. So, on with the show. Let's start with a little bit of news. You might have heard by now the incredible news that astronomers have found a system of seven Earth-sized planets all orbiting a single star, and that the system could not only host life, but is practically on our doorstep at only 37 light-years away. Considering that a little over 20 years ago, we weren't even sure that exoplanets even existed, well, this is a pretty astonishing find. Naturally, this has led to some media sources getting a little carried away with the news, so let's try to get things straight. First up, many of the news articles about this discovery include some nice pictures of the planets themselves, showing their color, landforms, and, and other features. To be clear, these are all artists' impressions. There is no technology that exists today that let us get that sort of extreme close-up view of worlds orbiting another star. What we know about these, or any other exoplanet, is limited to a few basic physical features. We know their mass, their diameter, and we know how far they orbit from their star. As it happens, you can detect your way to quite a lot of extra details, but until we manage to visit another star to directly observe those planets, we'll never know for sure if our theories match reality. There's a region we always hear about in these sorts of press releases called the Habitable Zone, which always leads to the suggestion that life might exist on these planets. Just to be clear, though, all that the Habitable Zone is is a region at the right distance from the star where water could potentially exist in liquid form on the planet's surface. Our own solar system has four large bodies within our sun's habitable zone, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the Moon. So, what do we know about these seven worlds? They all orbit a star called TRAPPIST-1, named for the robotic telescope in Chile that made most of the observations used to discover it. Incidentally, that discovery was backed up by observations made by other telescopes around the world, including the South African Astronomical Observatory's one-metre telescope in Sutherland. The star itself is incredibly small and dim, not much heavier than the planet Jupiter. These worlds are all in the same rough size and weight class as Earth and Venus. This is really unusual amongst the thousands of exoplanets that we've found and catalogued so far. Not only are they all the same size, they're all very close to each other. The entire system is built to about the same scale as Jupiter and its moons. Because TRAPPIST-1 is so cool and dim, its habitable zone is very close in. So close that the three planets within that zone take only a few days to orbit the star. Even the furthest of the seven has a year that only lasts 20 days. 
I mean, as much as I'd like to deflate all the hype, there's no denying it. This really is a very big deal. Astronomers have never seen anything like this before, and planetary scientists are very excited to study it further to learn more about how planets work outside of our own solar system. And given that our space travel technology is nowhere near able to take us as far as 37 light years, this means that astronomers are going to be booking a lot of telescope time to study the TRAPPIST-1 system further and looking carefully at other tiny dwarf stars to see what planets they have. They tell us that we're living in a post-truth world, whatever that's supposed to mean. All I know is that there is a growing number of people who look at the vast store of human knowledge and reject it. People who hear experts speaking on science or politics or medicine and say, nope, I saw a YouTube about this, I know better. And there's no starker demonstration of this than the modern flat earther. I mean, how does this happen? What makes sane adults with an education and a job buy into nonsense like this? I spent a few days trying to figure it out by picking a topic, shape of the earth as it happened, and watching Twitter to see how people talked about it. I found a lively discussion between the crew at Awesome Astronomy and a flat earther who was helping them to see the error of their ways. It was, it was depressing to see how it played out. The Flat Earther began by declaring some factoid about the Earth, and the science communicators at Awesome Astronomy uh, would respond with a simple challenge, something like, well, if that is true, then how do you explain this other thing? The Flat Earther would then respond in one of several ways, but he would never, never answer the challenge directly. He, and I'm assuming it was he, uh, it might accuse uh, the Awesome Astronomy guys of being in the employ of NASA as if that's some sort of insult. Or he might respond with mockery or accusations of dishonesty or, or both. You know, Kepler was the worst fraud in history and you fell for it. Lol! I stopped following that particular discussion off for two days. Amazingly, last I checked, it was still going strong after more than a week. It was clear that the flat earther had no interest at all in the evidence. He offered none to support his own position. No arguments. And he wouldn't respond to requests as simple as, look out the window and tell me what you see. Evidence didn't matter. Logic didn't matter. He'd chosen his opinion and he was going to stick with it, come hell or high water. The earth is flat and that's that. Of course, this sort of thing has been going on forever. People have been selling conspiracy theories for decades. And I say sell because there's always a book that you've got to buy or a movie that you need to pay to watch or whatever. The moon landings never happened. The world is going to end in 2012. Nibiru is a thing that's going to kill us all. The, the government, since they never specify which one, I'm going to assume they mean Zimbabwe's, is drugging us with fluoride in our tap water and chemtrails in the air to keep us compliant. Global warming is apparently a big hoax. The Illuminati secretly rule the world. The Rothschilds secretly rule the world. The world's politicians, monarchs and celebrities are all actually lizard people who secretly rule the world. The United Nations is actually a one-world government that, you guessed it, secretly runs the world. Big Pharma have a cure for cancer, but they're withholding it because something. Some guy invented a car engine that runs on water, but big oil suppressed it. Aliens are among us. But the government, 
if not Zimbabwe, then I guess the Rothschilds family or the Illuminati or the lizards or I'm so confused. Uh, whoever these secret leaders are, are keeping it a secret because some half-baked nonsense about thinking we're not ready because in this theory, they're looking after us. Uh, but this latest crop of beliefs, ranging from anti-vax to electromagnetic sensitivity syndrome to the belief in a flat earth, it's, all, it's something of a new low. I mean, I can understand why somebody might doubt the official line on something that doesn't connect to them. I personally have no way of checking that the moon landings ever actually happened, for example. I've never met an Apollo astronaut, and I've never handled any of the specimens they brought back to Earth. And, and even if I had, I'm, I'm not a geologist, so I wouldn't be able to tell the difference anyway. I'm not saying that I believe it was faked. I'm just saying that I can understand it. Anyway, I don't understand how somebody could be sceptical about something which is easy to verify, though. Historical mortality records are available to anyone who asks for them in almost every country. So it's easy to confirm just how drastically vaccines have improved overall human health. And somebody who claims to have headaches whenever they're at home, ever since that new cell phone mask went up, why don't they notice that there are towers literally everywhere that they go on Earth, so that maybe their headaches at home have some other cause. And considering that the true shape of the Earth was figured out by our ancestors more than two and a half thousand years ago, without the benefits of any modern special scientific instruments, well, it's pretty easy to prove that one too. But they choose not to. They don't look at the evidence or allow for any possibility in their heads that they might be wrong. And they don't even bother trying to prove their own point when debating it. Instead, they hurl insults. They mock those who disagree, and they generally act like monkeys in the zoo, flinging dung at their imagined enemies. It's depressing to see how gleefully they throw away humanity's greatest advantage, the ability to think and reason, and instead treat basic, objective facts about the world as just some other opinion to be attacked or defended with schoolyard insults and taunts. For all intents and purposes, these people might as well be internet trolls. Their persistence and stamina, their refusal to engage in any serious conversation, and their immunity to basic facts and logic checks are typical troll characteristics. In fact, for the longest time, I struggled to believe that they were sincere in their beliefs. I felt sure that we were all just the victims of an elaborate prank. And honestly, I'm still not 100% convinced. But YouTube videos are hard to make. A typical hour-long video might take a week for a dedicated individual to put together with help once you allow for scripting, recording, editing, creating the visual effects and so on. So to put out all those thousands and thousands of new flat earth videos that appear every week must be taking up all the spare time of an awful lot of people. Why go to all that effort if they, if they don't mean it? So how do you engage them? Honestly, if you're hoping to change their minds and persuade them that the scientific consensus of the past 2,600 years is in fact correct, well, then you're in for disappointment. Don't bother. You cannot debate somebody who will not debate. You cannot persuade somebody who actively refuses to even think about what you're saying. When you wrestle a pig, all you get is muddy. Does it mean we should just cut them off then? Well, no, because... While there's little to no hope of ever getting through to a hardline flat earther, the world is full of people who enjoy conspiracy theories simply for the fun of knowing something that everybody else doesn't. 
These people aren't particularly passionate about the shape of the earth or uncovering NASA's evil conspiracies. They just want another truth, even if they're skeptical about what they think of as mainstream beliefs. These people aren't really arguing. They're just watching from the sidelines and maybe repeating the best lines to their friends over a beer or around the water cooler. That is your audience. We need to engage with them, or at least for their benefit. But in moderation, I mean, as much as I admire the awesome astronomy crowd for their persistence, I don't know that I could survive such long arguments with my sanity intact. So let's get practical. You're on Twitter or Facebook, or maybe you're just scrolling through the comments at the end of an interesting astronomy article, and somebody comments that Buzz Aldrin is a filthy liar. He never went to Antarctica because it's just a wall around the edge of the Earth. That's an actual comment I saw, by the way, once. Uh, the article was about he made a trip to Antarctica and, and he needed to be uh, airlifted to hospital afterwards. So, yeah, quite a shitty thing to say, but, you know. Anyway, so you reply to this and suddenly you're struck trying to convince some random on the internet about something that every first-grade child knows. The Earth is, roughly speaking, shaped like a ball and not like a pizza. So where do you start? Now, I've written articles about this on Urban Astronomer, but the info in there... It's not much help when you're arguing with an actual flat earther. The ideas are too big to communicate in rapid-fire online arguments. And they're they're just complicated enough that the person you're explaining to you needs to actually put in some thoughts to understand what you're saying. And that is simply asking too much. So instead, ask them some of these simple questions about things that could not possibly be true on a flat earth. In a lunar eclipse, why is the shape of the earth's shadow always round? no matter where the moon is in the sky. This, incidentally, is this is exactly how the ancients figured it out, the true shape of the Earth. They noticed that it was always round. They also noticed that lunar eclipses only ever happen when the sun and the moon are exactly opposite each other in the sky. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that the dark shadow passing over the moon's surface, well, it must be the Earth's. And they also noticed that this shadow is always, always circular no matter where in the sky the moon happens to be at the time. The only way this can possibly be true is if the Earth is spherical. You can test it yourself. Shine a light against a wall and hold some various objects in the way to cast shadows. If you can find a single shape that is not a sphere, that casts circular shadows no matter how you hold it, well then, congratulations, you've just disproved the entire (laughs) branch of geometry. Next question, why do we have time zones? Or rather, why do we need time zones? You see, at around the time that the railroad was invented, people started noticing that it's not always the same time everywhere at once. You set your watch by noon at the exact moment when the sun is highest in the sky, you travel a few hundred kilometers, and all of a sudden your noon time is off by a few minutes. As in, you go outside the next day at noon, and the sun isn't at the highest point in the sky. It's it's not going to be for a few minutes. Because of this shift in minutes uh, in, in, in clocks that were set by the, t- by, by the sun, it became impossible to accurately schedule a long-distance train route. So they invented standardized time zones, where they just said, all of these areas, all land within this space has the same time. Now, on a circle Earth, this is obviously going to happen. But, but, how does, but how do you explain this on a flat Earth? You know, why would the sun be in a different place depending on where you are? You know, why would it rise at different times if it's coming over the same edge? 
Actually, there are a few explanations I can give for this. If your flat earther comes up with one, then congratulations for finding a flat earther who's prepared to actually think his way through a problem instead of just sticking his fingers in his ears and shouting at you until you go away. However, that answer probably won't work for any of the other questions on this list, and that is a problem for the flat earther. If you need three different theories to explain your world, depending on which questions people are asking, and all of those theories contradict each other, well, then they're wrong. So here's another question. Why are the sun and moon always the same size in the sky? Now, typical flat Earth models include a tiny sun and moon that orbit the world. The sun rises in the east, it passes overhead, descends in the west, and then it goes beneath the Earth so that it can rise again the next morning. I should mention that not all uh, flat Earthers think that this is how it works, but since they can't seem to agree with each other, I'm just going to go with the, 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 the standard idea, the, the most commonly heard one. Now, if it's true then the distance between you and the sun will vary according to the time of day and your location. I mean, obviously, right? Somebody in the Far East will see the sun that is closest, and therefore at its hottest and largest, in the early morning. And it'll then get progressively cooler and smaller throughout the day. Somebody to the Far West would see the opposite. A small, cool sun in the morning, big hot sun in the afternoon. And somebody in the middle, well, they would see a huge, big hot sun in the sky at midday, with teeny little cold suns at sunrise and sunset. And the question then is, why don't you see this? Why is the sun always the same size in the sky? Why do we actually see the sun behave in the way that it really would if it was actually hundreds of times larger than the Earth and hundreds of millions of kilometers away? Okay, try this one. Take a look out the window. Is it daytime or nighttime? Simple one, this. And it sort of leads back to the time zone question above. If the Earth is truly flat, then the entire Earth should be in daylight or darkness at the same time. There should never be anybody on Earth who can see the stars while somebody else can see the sun. And in this age of instant communications around the globe, or if you prefer, the disk, this is very easy to test. Find a friend in one of your contacts directories, on Facebook or Skype or anything. Somebody who is on the other side of the world from you. Call them. Start a video chat. Ask them to point their camera out the window so that you know they're not lying to protect the globalist conspiracy. Does it look like the same time of day or night as your own view from your own window? Of course it doesn't. Here's a little more abstract question. Have you ever looked through a telescope? You see, it was the telescope that showed Galileo that the Earth is not the center of all motion in the universe. He saw moons orbiting Jupiter. He saw imperfections on the surface of the sun. He saw mountains and valleys and craters on the moon, proving it to be an actual little world, and not just a small light passing through the skies. Now, his telescope was smaller and weaker than a typical pair of modern binoculars. Just look up. See it with your own eyes. There's no special training or talent required. Now, any child, when challenged to prove that the Earth is round, will ask the next question. Have you ever watched a ship? sail towards the horizon. Why? When a ship sails away from port into open sea, does it disappear in stages? First the hull, then the sails and flag in the old days, or the superstructure, then radio mast in modern times? Flat earthers have various ways of wandling around this one. Sometimes they claim that it's, well, it's just a lie that you see these stages. Other times they will acknowledge the stages, but they'll modify, they'll, they'll, they'll take the standard explanation for mirages and turn it on its head to explain that light bends and different parts of the ship become hidden. 
Just keep pressing for details on this. Just just keep asking them to explain more and more and more and just watch them tie themselves in knots because it doesn't work. Have you ever climbed a mountain or flown in an aeroplane? Now, in the town where I grew up, there was a moderately tall mountain called World's View with a lookout spot where you can park your car to look out over the city. Now, from the ground, you can see less than 10 kilometers. But when you get to the top of that hill, you can see closer to 50 kilometers. Entire neighboring towns become visible, if it's a clear day, obviously. If you go even higher in, say, an airplane or a helicopter, you can see further still. Clearly, the distance you can see depends on your height above ground level. Atmospheric haze does not set the limits, unless it's a particularly hazy day. Mystery refractive effects, as might have been offered for the previous question, well, they suddenly all vanish. So how does it actually work if we're not actually on a curved surface? I like this one because part of the flat Earth uh, narrative is that NASA are faking everything. No one's ever been in space because orbits don't exist because gravity doesn't exist because the Earth is flat. Right. So ask them, how does your satellite TV work? Right? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Your satellite TV uses a satellite dish, which is a highly directional antenna. You know this because it's so tricky to set the thing up. It's got to be pointed at exactly the right spot. And where is it pointing? Up into the sky. So what's it pointing at? Where's the signal coming from if there's nothing in space, if there's no man-made space program? You know what, here's another question, a really dumb one. Why do things fall? Believers in a spherical Earth... And this includes every single educated human on Earth for the past 2,600 years, have had to explain the problem of what keeps us from falling off into space. Newton's great discovery was that the mystery force that pulls us towards the center of the Earth is the same one that keeps the planets in their orbits by pulling them towards the sun. That solved a thousands-year-old mystery. But flat earthers like to claim that this is all a big fat lie, that gravity doesn't exist, that things fall because, because things fall which is delightful. Why is it hot today? Oh, because it's a hot day. Why is the sky blue? Well, skies are blue. I'm sure that's fine if you think your idea of proof is, well, I said it's true, and I'm never wrong. But sane people can tell when a question is being answered with itself. You know, if, 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 they, if they can't give answers, it's because they don't have them. And given that the answers we've got have been tested and probed for centuries by very bright people, all desperate to make a name for themselves by being the first ones smart enough to prove everyone else wrong, well, we've set a pretty high standard for what makes proof. Anyway, final word. If you are a flat earther and you're listening to this, look, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's false. It just means that you don't understand it. Well, that was our first episode. Yay us. As I said earlier, I'm really keen to hear what you thought about it. Too newsy? Too ranty? Or was it just right? You can find Urban Astronomer on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash urban astronomer. It's all one word. Or you can tweet me at uastronomer. That's the letter U followed by Astronomer. Or you could even leave a comment on the urban-astronomer.com website or even on iTunes. You'll find links to all of these on the show notes at urban-astronomer.com. If you have any questions about space, the universe, or astronomy, well, feel free to reach out and I'll answer them in the podcast. Don't forget to tell me your name so I can give you a shout out. 
Thanks once again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed or come back to wherever you found this recording for the next episode. Goodbye.